Well, we've mentioned a few times in our worship time and, and now with Roger here service leading that we have been going through the book of Revelation. We've had a number of weeks in order to dig into this already, and so I think it's good to just recap where we've come so far in that study. We noted at the very outset that this entire book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It teaches us about who he is, and he is the one revealing things about himself, and he reveals what is truly real. It might not always look this way in the world, but we get to see beyond the veil what God is up to and the way things are going to be headed. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and, and that first picture of him was Jesus in the midst of his church. Understanding that the persecution that was going on at the early church at that time, it might have felt like or seemed like Jesus was far away, but no, he was in the midst of his church when they needed him the most. The second vision we encountered was one of God's throne room, and John was trying to describe the indescribable, beautiful, dazzling, powerful throne. And again, amidst the chaos that the world is offering, it might have felt to some like the throne was empty. But no, there is a source of authority and power and sovereignty in the universe, and that throne is taken. There is one who sits on the throne. And the one on the throne had in his hand a scroll, completely full on the front and the back and sealed with seven seals. And it was this scroll that actually led to a moment of, of mourning because this, this represented the completion of, of creation. And there was no one worthy to open the scroll and to bring creation to where God had intended. And then one of the elders who was worshiping the one on the throne said to John, Fear not. There is one who is worthy. As we've just sung together, it was the conquering line of Judah, the root of David. And John turned around and saw the lamb that was slain, the one that had overcome, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls. And because the lamb is worthy, then he was opening these seals. He's opening them even now. And all of these things, even those things that include suffering and hardship, are still part of God's sovereign plan to bring everything to where it's always meant to be. And that is something worth looking forward to. Today, as we encounter the seven trumpets of Revelation, we need to ask a specific question. And the question is this, what is God doing? What is he doing? We know where he is. He's on his throne. We know that he has a design and a purpose and an end goal for creation. But what is he doing? And the answer that we come up with needs to be something that would have encouraged the original recipients of John's letter, because this is a letter written to the seven churches and then distributed to the other Christian churches. So if we look at the trumpets and ask, what is God doing? How does this encourage us today? It needs to be an answer that would have made sense, would have been a source of encouragement to those who read this for the first time. Who read this for the very first time. If you are looking for timelines, charts, and dispensations, then I'm afraid you will be sorely lacking here this morning. Because those things ultimately would have been of no help and of no use to those who needed all the help in the world when this revelation was first given. So we want to ground ourselves in their reality and know that we want revelation to speak for itself. And that is our goal here this morning. Interestingly enough, these seven trumpets in trying to describe to the people yesterday and also for us today what God is doing, they, they, they ground this story in a story that was familiar to many, the redemptive story of the Exodus, that story of God's redemption of his people, of God's deliverance of his people, was, was going to be something that would have been of great encouragement. 
Exodus was retold numerous times in Scripture and always with a very similar purpose, to remind God's people of what he had done before, he can do again, and he will do in the future. God has redeemed and delivered. He will do it again. And so Exodus remains our backdrop to help us answer the question today, what is God doing? Well, the first thing that we will see as you open up your Bibles, you can stay in Revelation 8 and 9. Those will be the two core chapters that we want to stay tethered to this morning, even though we'll look around a few other places in Scripture. Revelation 8 and 9, the seven trumpets, the first thing we see that God is doing is that God is answering prayer. As you stay in Revelation, I want to read for you uh, the, the fact that this is exactly how the Exodus story began. This is what we hear in Exodus 2, verse 23. During the many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So that great redemptive story of the Exodus began with the people crying out to God, praying to him, and God heard, and he understood, and he acted. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were persecuted, and they needed God's help for deliverance. The trumpets we are going to go over today are also symbols of God answering the prayers of his people. We see that in Revelation 8, picking up in verse 2. Revelation 8.1 is the final and seventh seal that we went over. It's silence in heaven. And then I read the rest of these verses last week. I should have really kept them for this week. Let's read them again, starting in verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints in the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So quite simply, at the beginning of the seven trumpets, God is clearly hearing and answering the prayers of his people. The incense before God's throne were the prayers of the saints, This is a picture that we got already back in Revelation chapter 5, and both in the tabernacle and later the temple, on these earthly reflections of God's throne room, there was an altar of incense that was kept in the holy place, right outside of the Holy of Holies, and they would keep incense burning there. The priests would keep incense burning there constantly before the presence of God. But that was not the main altar. That was, again, that earthly reflection. The heavenly altar has, has a bowl and it has incense, but the incense is the prayers of God's people, the prayers of the saints. In particular, as we've continued to read through Revelation, we know some of the nature of these prayers. What were they? Well, in Revelation 6, we know that the people cried out for justice. Just as the the children of Israel cried out to God for deliverance and for freedom, now there is the martyrs in heaven, those that have lost their lives for the sake of following the Lamb. They are now crying out to God for justice, for vengeance, for all those wrongs to be made right, for God's kingdom to come, for all of creation to be brought to its fullness. They are longing for the day in which this will happen, which apparently is not in 1988. They are longing for that day. They are waiting for it, they are crying for it, and that is the prayers that is filling God's throne room. 
and God hears, and then he answers. And that vision that, that we get, the way that God answers is to take that censer of fire with an angel, and he throws that fire down on earth. That's the representation of God answering prayer. And it's a stunning visual reminder for us that prayer is the most powerful force in the universe. In my previous church, there was a director of prayer. That was his favorite quip. Prayer is the most powerful force in the universe. And on the one hand, I, I readily agreed with him. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That makes sense to me. That adds up in Scripture. There was always part of me that was saying, aren't we overstating that just a little bit? Like, <laughs> isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? Isn't that a little bit much? But when we look through the world with the eyes that see through Revelation chapter 8, we realize that that is absolutely true. That, that, that prayer, God answers prayer by throwing fire down from heaven. It is the most powerful force in the universe. It is what God is using to, to bring creation where he intends it to go. Our prayers are heard before God's presence. He does act in power and in might. And so often... When there's a difficult time for us or somebody that we love and we know we can't do anything to help in that situation, it's so frustrating and we say or think, oh, the only thing I can do is pray. Have you ever felt that way before? I, I felt that way. I've, I've said that to other people. Other people have said it to me. The only thing I can do is pray. I'm like, wait a minute. Let's read Revelation 8 again. We shouldn't say, I can only pray. We can say, I have been given this opportunity to fill the presence of God in his throne room with my prayers that he hears and answers by throwing fire down from heaven. Now, that's a big difference. That's quite a different perspective to have. Do we pray like this? Do we realize that prayer truly is the most powerful force in the universe? And my hope is that as we pray together on Sunday mornings and in our small groups and as families and on our own, that we remember what is going on in heaven as we pray. Of course, what we are praying for matters. In, in our text today, God is moving to answer the cry of his people that align with his own heart. His people are crying for justice and mercy and his kingdom to come and other people to be drawn to him. And all of those things are revealed in Scripture as being part of the character of God. Those are the requests that, that move him to action. See, if our prayers are then to be sweet incense before the Lord, we must seek to also pray for things that align with his character. As we, as we learn more about God from his word and as, as he abides in us in his spirit and then sanctifies us to be more like him, as we learn more about him, then our prayers need to reflect his character, his priorities, his desires. Now, I don't think this means we can't pray for small things. My mom showed this to me uh, in her life. She was what I call a, a great spiritual shopper. Uh, there was a lot of years in which our, my parents were supported missionaries. We didn't have very much money. And my mom, one of her love languages was to give good gifts. She wanted to give gifts to people she loved, her friends and her family. And so she would ask God. She would go shopping. And before she went into a store, she had a very specific item in mind. And she said, God, I'd love to get this gift for so-and-so. If you could make it available in what we can afford, that would be great. And there were numerous times in which that exact item would be on sale or be found on a bargain table. Sometimes it was supposed to be there. Sometimes it wasn't, but they honored it anyway. God clearly showed my mom and then me by, by extension that God cares about those details of our life, that he is a, a father who also likes giving good gifts to his children. But I still do think we pray for those things differently because there's wants and there are desires and God is a good God who gives good gifts, but, but the prayers that are being answered with fire from heaven, 
Those are not wants. Those are needs. Those are, are, are desires that are born out of the desires that God has for this world. Those are the things that fill his throne room with incense that moves him to pray or to, to answer prayer. And of course, there are some things that we should probably never pray for. As uh, John Christ has a little clip. Is that, you guys check the clip? Is there a video clip in there? Awesome. Can you show that for everyone? Like my aunt, God bless her, she lives down in Florida. There was a hurricane t- came to town. She texted, she goes, hey, John, there's a hurricane coming to town. We're fine, but don't worry about us. But our neighbors have a $5 million house on the beach and they're very concerned about it. Can you pray? No. How am I supposed to pray for that? Jesus, be with all the orphans and widows and missionaries. Um, also, you know the Goldsteins? Uh, <laughs> yeah, from Boca Raton. Um, what's that, build your house in the rock? Nah, they put it right on the sand. Um, listen, um, we just asked. This is tough, but... Uh, when those floodwaters come ashore tomorrow, would you just... Would you just direct those waters around their house to other smaller, poorer people's houses? <laughs> other smaller, poorer people's houses. Yeah. This is good. This one, this one came across my newsfeed largely because he shares it every time there's a hurricane. But we shouldn't make light. So fictional Goldsteins aside, I do think that, uh, just to acknowledge that there's been a lot of a very legitimate destruction of, of even property of life in, in southeast United States and even in our own countries with Ian and with Fiona. So we're not saying we can't pray for these things. We're just saying that maybe we wouldn't pray for somebody's $5 million mansion at the expense of people around them. Right? So what I'm trying to say is that when we read Revelation 8 and when we start to really get a deep sense for the power of God's ability to answer prayer, that it doesn't make him some sort of vending machine where we can just say, well, God, I want this, therefore I know you have the power to move it and make it so. He does. But those are not the types of prayers that he is answering in this manner. He is answering the prayers of his people as it aligns with his own desires and goals for creation, much more than just getting what we ought. But prayer is that most powerful force in the universe. God is answering prayer. Now, if we want to go again back to the story of the Exodus, we know that the Israelites cried out to God for deliverance, and he heard them, and he acted, and he delivered them. He rescued them. He did, it, excuse me, he did it by sending ten plagues. And here, with the plagues, we find a very significant connection between Revelation 8 and 9 and the Exodus. So I didn't pick this to be a backdrop story because I thought it would be a good backdrop. It's what John is inviting us to do as readers, and hopefully this will be clear. Let's take a look at the connection here between the plagues in Exodus and the first six trumpets in Revelation chapter 8, verse 2 says, then I, oh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 7, that's where we're going to be. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Hail was a plague from the Exodus. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, water turning to blood. That sounds familiar because it comes from the Exodus. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Something else had happened in the Exodus. 
And then verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, a third of the stars, and a third of their light might become darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. And darkness was a plague, does anyone know from where? The Exodus. If we read about the fifth trumpet, skipping over to verse 12, we know that it included, um, sorry, 9 verse uh, 3, that it included smoke that came, and then locusts came from the earth. And they were, those locusts were giving power, like the power of scorpions on the earth. And a plague of locusts also comes from the Exodus. And lastly, in the sixth trumpet, all the way back in, into Revelation 9.18, it says, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Death, the angel of death, representing that tenth, final, most terrible plague, of the Exodus. So when you read Revelation 8 and all of those connections are made, then very clearly John is inviting us to to look to the Exodus to help explain what God is doing now is part of what he has done before. And what is God doing? Well, both in Exodus and Revelation, God's people are protected from these plagues or these judgments. We know that the children of Israel never had these issues in the places that they lived. And we know that the people in Revelation, the people of God, are sealed by the Spirit. We learned that last week. But perhaps the best way to explain it is that both in Exodus and now in Revelation, the people of God are protected by the blood of the Lamb. The Passover Lamb in Exodus with the blood on the doorposts and the slain Lamb that we celebrated from Revelation chapter 5. What was the purpose of these plagues? What was the, the goal? What, is God, what did God do then that he is still doing now? What is God doing? He is rescuing his people. These plagues or these judgments are purposeful. They're not vindictive. They don't come from an angry, spiteful God. They come from the fact that the seven churches that were hearing these words were in need of freeing. They were enslaved. They were persecuted. They did not have their freedom. They were running for their lives. They needed to be delivered. And God is saying, just as I delivered the children of Israel, so I too will deliver you. The purpose was always to deliver his people, not just from what they were experiencing, but to deliver them to the promised land. Children of Israel, yes, were freed from slavery in Egypt, but eventually that was not the end goal. That was just a part of the journey that ended when they finally were able to settle in that promised land of Canaan. And the hope for the early church and for us today is the eternal promised land, the new heaven and the new earth of which we have been given many glimpses so far in our study together. When troubles arise, when you find yourself in need of deliverance or of rescuing or of overcoming, do you rely on your own power for rescue? Or do you depend on the blood of the slain lamb? Because what God has done before, he is doing again. That is what Exodus and Revelation teach us together. So God is answering prayer. God is also rescuing his people. And he's doing it through judgments. And these judgments are severe, but they are not total. And yes, we can call the seven trumpets. We can call them judgments. If you wanted to know the the Coles Notes version of this sermon, what is God doing? Well, God is judging. God is sending judgments. But the details we get about this are incredibly important, including the numbers that are used. Because these judgments are not complete, they're only partial. When, the, when we read over the, the, those brief descriptions of the trumpets, there was a number or a fraction that came up over and over and over again. And that was one-third. 
One-third of the earth was burned up. One-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the water is bitter. One-third of the sun, moon, and stars is darkened. And one-third of the people are killed. Why one-third? Well, because it's partial. It's incomplete. There's also another partial number, and that's the horde of locusts are given this freedom, this allowance to sting and to torment for five months. Five months, a finite period of time, a definite period of time. One-third and five months then becomes a symbol of mercy, a symbol of warning. This is not the day of the Lord in which Jesus comes again and judges one and all for all eternity. That day has yet to come. In preparation of that, instead there is these partial judgments that serve to give mercy to people, that serve as a warning for people. And it is working out even now on the stage of human history. These trumpets are being blown as a way to warn the people of God. Trumpet sounding as a as warning of judgment is a very common picture in Scripture. And the seven trumpets should certainly be um, treated in the same way. Joel chapter 2 says this, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Why? Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A trumpet is a sound of prophetic warning. And even these judgments that, that are the trumpets are judgments of warning. Time is coming. The day of the Lord is near. So what is God doing? He is using these partial judgments to call people to repentance. God is calling for repentance. When these plagues were being brought upon the people of Egypt, God was, yes, answering prayer, and yes, he was delivering his people, but he also had that goal that we see so often, that he he was trying to soften Pharaoh's heart, that heart that always was so hard. He was moving in power, and he was moving in such a way in which everyone, the Israelites and the Egyptians and Pharaoh himself, would have to say, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone is the one true living God. No other magicians could accomplish this. No other gods could move in this type of power. God was proving himself to everyone and calling for their repentance, the softening of their hearts. (coughs) Judgment is not penalty. It's not punitive from an angry, spiteful God. He desires his people to return to him. In Joel chapter 2, it begins with the warning of a trumpet. And then it moves to the reason for that warning in verse 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So these trumpets are terrible, and they're harsh, and there is suffering, and we don't minimize any of that. But if you're wanting to know how could a loving God allow these things to happen, it's because he is merciful. It's because he is loving. It's because he is sending these partial judgments to call to the world, return to me before it is too late. That is God's heart, even in the midst of the judgments, return to me. Unfortunately, Revelation warns that while this is God's heart, some won't listen. We see this at the end of the sixth trumpet in verse 20 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent 
of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. God desires repentance. Even now, God is at work trying to grab the world's attention and draw people to himself. So why? Why do we have reason to believe that this would be a a present-day reality instead of some sort of future timeline? Just as it was clear and obvious that the four horsemen that represent war, famine, and plague were a present reality because we still see war, famine, and plague. If we look at these judgments, we know that they are also the same present reality. They are things that are still happening today. Now you'll say, hey, that doesn't make any sense, Pastor, because I've never seen a third of the sky darkened or a third of the sea turned to blood or a third or a locust that looked like horses. I haven't seen any of these things. I say, you're right, because we have to remember that these trumpets and these judgments are symbolic. And so if you're waiting for a day in which you will witness, the, witness these things happening literally, I would say you're probably going to wait a really, really long time, if not forever. These symbolic judgments point to what is happening today. It points to creation going haywire and God grabbing the world's attention and trying to call to people, return to me before it's too late. Creation is going haywire and God is grabbing the world's attention. And that is what these partial judgments are doing. Now, again, I don't think I would have to, to uh, make a very convincing argument to just get you to say, hey, does it look like creation is going haywire? I think that is certainly the case. What could be the reason behind that? I would argue that Revelation 8 says God is behind that to call people back to him. We have to be very careful with how we apply this, not getting too specific. Well, what do I mean? Well, like Roger, it's been a long time since I was in Bible school, but I remember as a third-year student when I was in college that Hurricane Katrina came up the Gulf Coast and devastated New Orleans. And Pastor John Hagee said at the time that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on the sinful city of New Orleans. And I was like, you can't say that. And later on, he was looking at it, he's like, you know what, I can't say that. So he actually recanted from that. But that's the danger. We ought, we ought not to draw those specific conclusions. We don't know the heart of God for each of those individual situations. I'm not trying to say that this hurricane is God's judgment for this and for that and for that. I'm trying to say creation is going haywire just as Revelation promised, and the heart of God behind it is to draw people back to him. That is what Revelation is telling us. Not to say people deserved it, not to say that we somehow know the reason for this, like we know God's inner working of his mind. Those things are unhelpful. All we need to know and be certain, and what I believe Revelation teaches us, is that even these harsh judgments are merciful and designed to save. That is the God that we follow. That's the God that has revealed himself to be this way in the book of Revelation. What is God doing? He is answering prayer. He is rescuing his people. He is calling for repentance. There is one more piece of our puzzle. Just like the seven seals, though, there is now an interlude between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. In the seals, we had the six seals, and then the interlude of the, of the 144,000, and then the seventh seal. Here we have the first six trumpets, and then we have some really interesting chapters of the angel and the little scroll in chapter 10, and the two witnesses in chapter 11, an interlude, and then we have the seventh trumpet after that. We are going to come back to these interludes next week, but for now, we're going to look back to that seventh trumpet and keep that line of thought going. As we 
dig deeper into the, to the angel and the little scroll and the two witnesses next week. Those are going to be some fun things to read. But what is the seventh trumpet? Where does this go? Where does it end? Let's read together Revelation 11. Skip ahead, and I'll start reading in verse 15 and following. Give me one second. I'm always glad that we're recording these sermons when I'm hacking and coughing up here. If only this could stay alive on the internet forever. Okay. Let's read again. Revelation 11, picking up in verse 15, the seventh trumpet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within its temple, and there was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. What did John see? What is God doing? Well, what John sees is another glimpse of the very end, where those first six trumpets are these partial judgments that God is working out on the stage of history. Even now, it brings us to a point, and that point of completion. And that is what we see in the seventh and final trumpet. Because the kingdom of God has come in its fullness. He says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. Jesus has returned the kingdom of God is the kingdom of earth, the new heaven and the new earth. The part, the detail that I love the most is when the elders are praising God again and they call God the God who is and the God who was. And we've heard this prayer before, this praise before, and what did it say then? They're praising God who was and who is and who is coming. Well, God is no longer being praised as the God who is coming. And why is that? Because he's returned. He's arrived. He is here. That praise has changed. We are now praising God who was and who is. He no longer needs to return, for he has done that in the picture we get in Revelation 7. John gets a glimpse of God's temple at the very end of these things. And then in the temple, he sees the Ark of the Covenant along with all of those things that symbolize God's presence, lightning, rumblings of thunder, etc. What is God doing? Well, God finally is keeping his covenant with his people. He's keeping his covenant with his people. And if, again, we allow Exodus to be that story that's our backdrop, it began with prayer, and it had God rescuing his people, calling for repentance, and then it ended with God making a covenant with his people in Exodus chapter 19. We've gone to Exodus 19 quite a few times because it is a hugely important passage in the book of Revelation. Exodus 19.4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God made a covenant with them, and he stayed true to this covenant, even as... The people of Israel that received it couldn't keep up their end of the bargain. They fell short, just as you and I all fall short of that glory of God. We are not able to keep 
the covenant that was initially given to God's people. However, there was a new covenant. And I love the way it's described in Hebrews. I'm going to share this with you as our music team comes up for one song of response. Here is Hebrews 9, verse 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. God has delivered his people to the eternal promised land. And the reason that works, the reason it's assured, the reason we have this inheritance is because of the slain lamb. And how many more chapters do we need to read in Revelation to realize that everything turns on that picture of the lamb in Revelation 5? He is the overcomer. He is the conqueror. He is the reason we can be sealed as God's people and know that our our eternal inheritance is assured. We have that promised land. So what is God doing? He is keeping his promises. He is keeping his covenant. He is encouraging his people yesterday, today, and in the future, saying, hang on, it is worth it. There is a promised land for you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are the author of all what we read in Scripture. We are especially thankful for the pictures that you have given us in Revelation, how they're meaningful of, of what's truly going on in our life, in the world around us, what's truly going on in the future and how it's held in your hands, and what's truly going on in our hearts in which we constantly need to turn to the slain lamb. We thank you for what you are doing, and we praise you for it. Amen. Thank you.